Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another SACPAS session. Um, we are happy to have Alan Garbett with us today. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships to the land. SACPA also would like to acknowledge and is very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Um, again, today we have Alan Garbett, um, and Alan is going to talk to us about coal dust, wind, and human health. Alan was born and raised in Calgary, though he does admit to sort Shardons to Edmonton and Fort McLeod. He received a Bachelor in Science in Honours Zoology at the University of Alberta, which was followed by, a by both a Master's and a PhD from the University of Guelph. Alan's research area was the reproductive biology of ruffled grouse. Alan, thank you very much for joining us today, and we very much look forward to your talk. Good morning, Annalise, and the rest of you on the line. Um, this may not be the most polished presentation ever. I haven't done any public speaking in years, and I haven't done a presentation to a large audience that I can't see ever. Um, today's topic is coal dust, wind, and human health, risks of coal mining in southwest Alberta, I didn't have any particular knowledge in this area until I began to get concerned about the um, potential health effects of the coal mine. I worked with some local public interest groups and they asked me to research health and coal dust, well coal, because of my background as a rural family doctor in Crowsness Pass for 25 years. When you first look at coal, there's not a lot of information suggesting that acutely it's a problem. When you dig into it more deeply, there begins to be some negative impacts clear. It's a pretty complex topic. It involves everything from fluid dynamics and how wind flows to energy transfer to particles through to um, epidemiology. It breaks out to a number of separate topics that all come together. The topics are things like the types of dust, wind speeds, how do you model the distribution of dust, where does the dust particle end up, and once it gets there, what does it do? So I'll try and break that out initially into a discussion of the dust and wind and how it was how these things were presented in the material the coal mining company, which is Benga or Riversdale Resources, how they presented that information to the joint review panel that wrapped up its hearings a couple of months ago. Most of the research that's been done on dust in the past 
has concentrated on a couple of size groupings. Those are dust particles that are less than 10 microns in diameter and those that are less than two and a half microns. The um, less than 10 group includes the less than two and a half group. Uh, more recently, it's become clear that it's the tiniest particles, the ones that are significantly smaller than even the two and a half micron cutoff that have some of the most important impacts. So more recent literature starts to talk about uh, particle sizes that are less than 0.1 microns. To sort of try and visualize that, the larger particles, the less than tens, most of them settle out pretty quickly. They behave in a fairly traditional particle dispersion model and they settle out quickly. The two and a half micron ones are airborne for considerably longer. You can think of them probably as the dust motes that you see in sunbeams through the house. They're probably the ones that my wife makes the noise about we have to clean up when we're dusting the house. <laughs> the tiny ones you can't see. Doesn't matter how you um, try and visualize them, they're too small to be seen. The first two groups follow a pretty typical particle dispersion model. They've been well characterized by the physicists and people like that. The 0 0.1 or less than 0 0.1 particles behave somewhere between a, a gas and a particle. Their dispersion properties are not very well understood. Um, but one of the important points here is that they, there are an enormous number of them in a very small weight. If you can put up the first slide, Annalise. Okay, the, um, the smallest ones float, they, as I said, they come around almost like a gas. The, sec the next slide, please, Annalise. The, two, the typical way that these things have been displayed in um, various publications is usually by weight. There's X amount of the larger particles, there's Y amount of the next size, and there's Z amount of the smallest particles. And then someone typically says, well, there's such a small amount of the smallest particles, they can't possibly be a problem. Unfortunately, that's not really true. It's the number of particles, not the weight of particles, that's important. And in the smallest particles, even a gram represents an enormous number of particles. So you have to watch that when you're looking at various reports. The, the next item that we get into here is how do these particles travel? We'll go to the next slide, Annalise, the energy equals mass. The energy that wind convey, conveys to dust 
is basically a function of the primarily of the velocity of the wind. The energy that goes into the dust particle depends on the weight of the particle, but it's the velocity squared which makes the biggest difference. That brings us around to wind and how Benga approached this. Um, those of you who live in southern Alberta will understand the surprise I had when I was reading the Benga EIA and I came across the statement that winds in this area rarely exceed 60 kilometers per hour. <laughs> um, those of us who live around here know that you spend a great deal of the period between November and April trying not to get blown off the planet. Um, and if you go back to my earlier slide about energy being related to the square of the velocity, not to the velocity by itself, uh, that becomes quite apparent. The mining company submitted, I believe it was 12 addendums to their initial report to the uh, joint review panel. That claim of 60 kilometers per hour as a top speed persisted at least until the eighth addendum. Considering that there were approximately 15,000 pages in the documents, um, I can't claim that I read everything in addendums 9, 10, 11, and 12, but I read virtually everything up to a, addendum 8. Um, it was really hard to understand how they came to that number and why they stuck with it. You have to remember that Benga's office is in downtown Blairmore. They did have the doors arranged so that the wind would not catch them. Um, the expert on wind and particles who made the presentation did get Benga to admit how they had collected their wind data. They had put in two stations on the mine site, uh, which were there. Neither of them was there for the full period, but the combined two stations covered approximately mid-June to mid-October. It's a little surprising, but then if you don't want to get high wind speeds, you would not measure when we have high wind speeds. Then we found out that they hadn't followed standard protocols. The standard protocol for getting annual data is you install the weather station and you keep it there for at least a year. We know that they only kept it there for the better part of four months. In a standard wind station, the anemometer, that's the device to measure wind speed, is installed at a height of 10 meters above ground because wind speeds drop dramatically as you get closer to the ground. Their anemometer was at two meters above ground level. So we've got 
wind data that's collected at the time of year when you will not likely get our maximum winds. You get it collected at a height that will reduce the speed that you record. Then if you go, remember again that we're talking about the energy that goes into the dust particles and how far they will go. So there is a, a protocol for determining how far particles go. There's a standard formula. You plug the numbers that you get from your weather stations into the formula. The formula includes a piece where it says velocity squared. They plugged it in and forgot to square it. So we now have three measurements that all tend to underestimate the energy that is going to hit a dust particle. Not surprisingly, Benga said there wasn't going to be much dust get out the mine area. However, I forgot to ask you to put more slides up, Annalise. My it, apologies. Folks. It's okay. I'm following along. If you can... I followed it. Okay. Yeah, I. It's okay, Alan. I've I've got it covered. I think I'm following along nicely with your slides. Okay. Uh, then Benga further complicated the estimation of dust with another one of the big things that also influences dust is how much bare ground is there for the wind to impact. Again, an underestimate, this time by approximately 50% of the area that would be bare during mining. So we have from Benga multiple errors. They collected their wind speeds at the wrong time, at the wrong height. They put them in the wrong equation and they have the wrong area. Uh, so the information they provided to the joint review panel is not likely accurate. The dust will almost certainly go further there will probably be a lot more dust that gets airborne and therefore it's going to impact more people or has the potential to impact more people. Uh, then we swing over into what does, what does coal dust that exits the mine do to people? The workers in the mine can at least in theory be protected. You can give them masks and put them in sealed cabs and all of those sorts of things. The general public isn't going to be able to um, wear a mask 24-7. They're not going to be in sealed spaces. Um, so then we need to look at how coal dust may impact people outside of the mine environment. Uh, we should now be at the inhaled dust particle section. As I said earlier, much of the research has been done looking at relatively large particles and medium-sized particles. I mentioned that those were relatively easy to work on. We also have 
equipment that will measure them carefully, nicely. The smallest particles we have some difficulties with. We don't have good equipment that's easy to deploy in a real-world setting. They're working on it, but we don't have good good information on it yet. We have to also remember that that information deficiency will affect anything that we have uh, collected pre previously. But we'll break it out into the three particle sizes and what they do. The largest ones, the less than 2.5s, they don't get into people or presumably animals very deeply. They're relatively large, they're easily trapped, and they're easily, when they do get into the upper airway, which is about as far as they go, they're relatively easily removed through a mucus transport system. Lungs and airways have a very efficient way to generate mucus, which traps small particles, and then they clear the mucus back up the throat, and it's swallowed and eliminated that way. Usually, you're not even aware it's happening. Uh, the medium-sized particles, the less than 2.5s, they get deeper into the lungs, but not generally full depth. Again, they get trapped by the multitudes of filters in the airway. The smallest particles, we're now in the um, slide on nano, what I call nanoparticles. These are the less than 0.1s. They get to a variety of, they have a variety of names. You'll see them as ultra particles, nanoparticles, ultrafine particles, and then, of course, just the less than 0.1 marker. Those ones, as I said, have almost gas-like times. They can flow and reach the deepest parts of the lungs. They're hard to clear because they get so far into the lungs that there isn't a really good removal system in place back then. The, um, the particles have an ability after they get to the deepest parts of the lungs to damage things in a variety of ways. We'll get to that. Um, then we look, we work on the assumption that the dust can get in. It has a potential to do things. Do we have any way to prove it? This takes us into a lot of epidemiology data coming mostly out of Appalachia. That's the, uh, you've got it? Good. Yeah. There's been strip mining and underground mining in Appalachia for a long, long time. They have recently, that is in the last 20 years, shifted primarily to strip mining, mostly to what's called mountaintop removal, which is essentially you turn mountains into molehills. You knock the top off, push it into the valley, grab all the coal out of the middle of the mountain and leave a mess behind. A couple of researchers in West Virginia started looking into this. 
The most prominent is a fellow by the name of Michael Hendricks. There's a uh, slide with his name on it, Annalise. Okay. He and fellow researchers have produced more than 30 papers on health effects in Appalachia. These are all epidemiology. You can't prove that a particle of X size with this chemistry landed on that cell and did the bad things. But if you can look at tens of thousands of people living with exposure to coal dust versus tens of thousands of people living without exposure to coal dust, you can come up with some ideas. There are epidemiology methods where you can compensate for all, all or most of the other variables that might impact health. And Hendrickson and company compensated for uh, socioeconomic status, smoking, alcohol, for a large number of variables. When you work your way through it, living near a coal mine is bad for you. There are a variety of problems that come up. There's more asthma. There's more heart disease. There's more strokes. There's more lung disease. And that's not just black lung. There's more kidney disease. There's more premature births. There are more babies born at a low birth weight. There's even more dementia. The, the researchers can even give you a timeline on when specific health problems will start to arise. Asthma is the first thing that starts to go up and it makes its appearance approximately two years after a mine goes in. It's particularly bad with kids. Dementia takes considerably longer. Those rates don't start to rise for more than 10 years. The, that brings up the question of how does this happen? Um, I've talked to you about how the particles get different depths into the lungs. The smallest particles are the ones that are probably the culprits. These are very small. They sometimes may be a single molecule. If they're not a single molecule, they're not more than a few molecules. And either the single molecule or one of the multiples may be something that's generally speaking bad for human health. Um, none of us want to drop some arsenic on top of a cell. None, none of us want to drop too much cadmium or selenium or chromium. All of those things are found in small, sometimes tiny amounts in coal, but they're there. What it looks like happens is that there are multiple ways the particles cause trouble. The easiest is that a toxic piece lands on a cell and is directly, directly toxic. It hurts the cell. Then we get into some more insidious processes. 
Um, it turns out that these little, I was going to use a bad word for them, um, these small parts can actually penetrate the body. They can travel between cells or through cells, and then they enter the circulatory system. That can be arterial, it can be venous, it can be lymphatic, it doesn't really matter. The particles can then be transported anywhere, which is probably why we see multi-organ health issues. Uh, this is one of the places where we actually have some information that says this particle is bad in a demonstrable way. They've managed to take coal, coal fines, ultrafine particles, and introduce them into models for what happens to the lining of blood vessels. And it triggers changes that are very similar to um, those that are responsible for heart attacks and things like that. So we now know that winds higher than Benga talked about over an area much larger than Benga talked about will distribute dust that may carry toxins deep into your lungs. And we have a package of 30-plus papers out of a single lab, plus corroborating information from a bunch of other labs around the, the country and the world showing that ultrafine particles... Uh, you'd have thought that at the hearing, Benga would have... Um, presented some information to counter this. Unfortunately, the rules at the hearing didn't require them to even mention that this information exists. All they were required to present was information that said, dust isn't going to go very far, and none of the stuff in our dust is going to cause people problems. The unfortunate part about this is that you only have to show that a single element at acute measurement levels will not cause a problem. You don't have to look at multiple exposures, you do not have to look at chronic exposures, and that's precisely what Benga did. They said we're not going to spew dust around the countryside and none of our things in single exposures, acute environments, will cause a problem. The counter evidence from the uh, the opponents was presented. How the joint review panel will weigh that, we won't know probably until the middle of June. Um, the, the conclusion has to be that coal dust is hazardous to health. And people shouldn't breathe it. Then you have to look at, is there any practical way to keep people from breathing? Well, unfortunately, in this part of the world, you can't wrap everybody up in protective gear. So the only solution I can see is no coal mines. And I think that pretty much wraps it. Annalise, we can go to questions. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alan, 
for your presentation. I've just put up your slide with your um, with your contact details so people can uh, contact you. Our first question is from Laurie Schultz. Are you aware if there are similar studies slash data on health effects on populations living around the Cheviot mine in West Central Alberta? The, the problem is that no Alberta population is big enough and has been exposed for long enough with good enough health records for us to be able to look at that sort of thing. The Crow's Nest Pass has a hundred year history of coal mines, though most of them ended 40 years ago. But there's never been a big population here and we haven't collected the data that the Americans have. So the short answer is no, we don't have the data. Okay, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. A recent Guardian article noted 2.8 million mortality worldwide from COVID in 15 months versus an 8.7 million from air pollution in that same period. Comments, please. It's all the same. Um, it's a question of how do you break out how many people do small particles kill? And in the context of Crow's Nest Pass, there's not a lot of traffic. At present, there's not a lot of mine dust, but there will be. And yes, we should be doing everything we can to clean up the air from any source. But one of the first steps in that is don't make it worse. Okay, our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Thanks, Alan. Are there mental health problems from epide epidemiological studies? Woo. That one didn't come up. It has certain technical challenges simply in defining in a consistent manner uh, whether mental health is good, bad, or indifferent. It's much easier to uh, state that X percent of people suffered from a heart attack or had a stroke versus how many were depressed and how badly were they depressed. Um, a comment from Maria Fitzpatrick. This was great presentation. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. In a weird way, it can be argued that the COVID pandemic has prepared us for coal mining by getting us to use masks. Will these protect us in a substantial way? If you can wear a mask 24-7, um, potentially they could. Virus particles are... Um, not much different in size than some of the uh, nanoparticles. So they should be excluded to a certain point. But most of what a mask does is prevent you from bombarding 
other people with particles directly rather than filtering them out as they come into you. So I would, guessing at it, I would say that um, there would be a small improvement in health. But again, when the first things don't show up for a couple of years, and some of them don't show up for more than a decade, it's going to be really hard to measure. Our next question comes from Terry Shillington. Did you mention what area is reached by this coal dust? Does it reach to Lethbridge, for example? We don't really know where it will go. First off, the only modeling has been done by Benga, which I've shown is seriously flawed. The other stuff that didn't make it into the presentation is that modeling um, dispersion in a coal dust in a Chinook wind environment is very difficult. Those of us who live around here have all experienced the abrupt 180 degree changes that sometimes happen in the wind. Um, so no, we don't really know where the dust would go. Right. And I think that sort of asks, um, answers Mark Goodall's question as well, but I'll just read it out. But I think it's the, probably the same. Using 100 kilometer an hour winds in the models, how far eastward would nanoparticles travel eat, eastwards? Thank you. Well, I can add a little bit to that. Um, Sorry, can I just the... can I just interrupt for a minute? My mic was off. Sorry, folks. I just jumped to Mark Goodall's question on the wind speeds as we were just talking about that. So Mark Goodall's question was using 100 kilometer an hour winds in models, how far eastward would nanoparticles travel eastwards? As I said, we don't we can't really model that very well, but we do have some information from eastern Canada that should make us think carefully about it. Um, when they've been tracking the air pollutant stuff in southern Ontario, they estimate that more than 50% of it comes from America in the broadest term, which may be some of it floating across the lake from Buffalo, some of it may be coming out of the southern parts of the Ohio Valley. Now that's mostly gases, but you'll recall what I said that some of the nanoparticles behave more like gases than, than particles. So we get into an area that we don't have good information on. The stuff that we have that is suggestive says it can go a long way. Okay, our next question comes from Belinda Croson. Southern Alberta has increased rates of multiple Chlorosis. A theory have I have heard connects it to the wind and dust. Is this theory accurate? And if it is, what effects would the coal dust have on MS? I'm afraid I can't talk to that at all. I know very little about MS, and I know other than that, there have been a ton of theories on what causes it and nobody can say for sure. 
next question. Uh, can you comment on the effects of livestock consuming crops that have been exposed to these noxious particles? Sorry, Annalise, your, your question broke up. Okay, let me repeat it. Um, can you comment on the effects of livestock consuming crops that have been exposed to these noxious particles? Not directly. Um, those of us who live near the Old Man River Reservoir, though, um, frequently watch dust storms come off the um, the mudflats that are exposed when the reservoir drops. And that dust definitely ends up in um, crop and hayland. So it may not be a case of the amount of dust deposited in any one area from the mine itself will be a problem. There's not much cropland within crop or hayland within 20 kilometers of the mine, but there's certainly a potential for places around the Old Man Reservoir to be rather heavily contaminated. There's also a letter in a Western stock grower from a fellow by the name of Lee Elder last summer in which he details how selenium in water can be bioaccumulated through intensive agriculture into a problem. Okay, our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley. Is there any indication that people in the Elk Valley of southeastern BC are affected by air pollution from tax coal mines? I haven't seen it, but again, I would suspect that it's a problem of small population sizes. Um, the entire Elk Valley has maybe 15,000 people in it and probably more than half of that live um, away from the prevailing, they live west of the mines and the prevailing winds will take the dust, most of the dust from the mines into Alberta. So the number of BC people um, exposed is relatively low the exposure time there is again not that long um so i i haven't seen the data if it exists our next question is what course of action do you think needs to be taken so that companies like benga are held more accountable for their severely missed for their severe miscalculations performed by supposed experts. Well, you'd have to start with the politicians. Uh, there's a line that uh, rules are only as good as the enforcement. Jason Nixon has made a fetish about telling everybody how strict our standards are. 
I noticed that he hasn't talked much about how our enforcement goes. If Grace Life Church is any example, you can thumb your nose for a long time. Our next question comes from Laura Schultz. Was the dust slash wind research you are providing today presented formally at these recent hearings? Oh yes, we had um, Jim Young, who's a PhD, former senior climate scientist with Environment Canada, presenting all of this information. Um, he's the one who figured out where Benga was managing to get their low wind speeds and things of that nature. He's the one who spotted the errors in the calculations. Um, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Coal mining companies promise to mitigate dust from their operations by spraying water on surfaces likely to give off dust. How effective may that be when the wind blows? Uh, somewhere between not much and none. Mm -hmm. There are a number of problems with that. I'll use an example here. They rebuilt the road west of us uh, about five years ago. The road is straight line between four and five miles away, six and a half to eight kilometers. They had a water truck going up and down that road continually. It's about a 10 kilometer stretch they were working on. By the time the truck reached the far end of the 10 kilometers, there was a dust cloud coming our way on a windy day. The other problem is there's probably not enough water in southern Alberta to damp down the dust. Uh, there's a piece from something called Alberta Logs, that's capital A, capital B, capital L, A-W-G, published recently, that does a detailed take on Benga's request for water. And one of the things they look at is the amount of water available the amount of water needed to suppress dust and comes up with the conclusion that even the one mine between all the demands would result in not enough water to keep the crops growing down at Lethbridge. Wow. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. If Bangor goes ahead with Grassy Mountain, will there be an independent research group who can monitor and track all effects? Ideally, yes, but this is Alberta. Um, funding such a program would be expensive. As I said, the first health impacts aren't seen until two years in. The biggies like heart attacks, strokes, and dementia are five to 20 years out. So the logistics of doing it, the funding required 
is pretty daunting. I would be happy to see it done. I don't think that we're likely to see it. One of the things that was so successful um, in the No Drilling Left Bridge campaign was the shaming that the activists and the people who took part in the No Drilling Left Bridge, they shamed the company for all the misinformation that they were providing to the point that the company withdrew. Is there such a campaign going on in Pincher Creek where you can shame the company with the data that it's providing to the point that the community is completely in an uproar and the company decides to leave? Well, a couple of problems with that. Of Pincher Creek's not where the mine is. It's 30 to 40 kilometers west of there in Crow's Nest Pass. Uh, the pass is a very pro-mining town. One of their counselors has been on almost innumerable um, media outlets saying how wonderful Benga is and how they will use best technology and so on and there will be no problems. There's also some pretty aggressive um, pro-mine parties in the past who perhaps not overtly suppressed dissent but certainly covertly inhibited. Yeah. I think we've lost your audio. Can you repeat that? I said that... Um, there you go. You're back. Yeah. Okay. I said that the uh, Pincher Creek isn't actually where the mine is. The mine is 30 to 40 kilometers west of that. Crozenus passes the nearest affected community. One of their counselors is Lisa Sigatuck, who's been on multiple media presentations talking about how... Um, wonderful Benga is and how they will use best available technology. The community has a lot of strongly pro-mining folks and they at least covertly suppress dissent on that point. It's not, it's not felt to be safe to, for example, even have an anti-mining bumper sticker. Okay, wow. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. From 1967 to 1971, Energy Country Research noted problems from small aerosols, but not released until 2003. Your comments, please. Well, part of that probably reflects technology. Um, we simply, as I said, we have problems even now trying to measure nanoparticles. Simply trying to get a sample that only includes the smallest particles, but gets all of them is very difficult. 
1970, it probably wasn't possible. So part of our problem here is likely we didn't have the technology to do it. Part of it is probably our gradually evolving um, awareness that a whole bunch of, um, I guess what you could call industrial civilization probably has byproducts that are bad for us. And then you run into, well, even if it's bad for us, how do we get rid of it? Or do how do we avoid it? Trying to avoid the byproducts of an internal combustion engine living in Calgary is a really tough proposition. Our um, Laurie Schultz has a comment. She says, uh, SACPA, uh, Laurie Schultz is the board chair of SACPA, and SACPA has invited several pro-mine individuals and or groups to present at SACPA. However, none have accepted to date. Do you have a comment on that? Um, you mean one that won't get me sued? <laughs> Right. I I would suggest that there is a recognition of a weak um, weak position that they don't want to try and defend in front of what's likely to be an informed and not supportive audience. Right. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz again. Can you comment on health effects on fish and wildlife? I didn't get into that. That part of the um, def defense of non-mining or opposition to mining fell to a different group. But um, selenium's the best known piece. They're Every, effectively every coal mine in the world leaks selenium. If you break up rock that bears coal and turn it into small fragments, then allow oxygen and water at it, it will leak um, selenium and probably other materials. As I said, there are a host of trace minerals in in the rock that can be damaging. Uh, learned some information in the last couple of weeks that is suggestive of bigger problems in in the area than we know about. A couple of fisheries biologists have commented that creeks coming out of the area of the old Tent Mountain mine, one that's being proposed for reactivation, used to have pretty good trout populations. Alberta Fish and Wildlife now apparently reports there are no fish in those waters. There's no barriers to fish being in that water, but there's a whole lot of water that comes into that that has gone through the old mine. And it takes years, sometimes decades, for selenium to build up to a dangerous level. The other item is that Fishermen are starting to catch fish around here 
that have deformed gill plates and deformations of the gill plates are usually a marker of selenium contamination. The old man may already be contaminated with a dangerous level of um, selenium, at least if you're a fish, but I haven't seen anything published by the Alberta government that tells us what the number is. Okay. Our... Several of us have been talking about trying to find that information, but we don't have it. Okay. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson regarding the promised coal mining consultation by the UCP government. What are your hopes from that exercise? My hope is they do it right. Mm. That means you stop doing things that could be damaging until you decide whether you will even consider coal mining. Um, the, the consultation process itself needs to involve what I would call everyday Albertans. I think Ralph Klein called them severely ordinary Albertans. The people who use that area that they want to turn into a giant coal mine come from all over the province. They come to sit in relatively undisturbed country. They don't come to sit down, downwind downstream of giant shovels, blasting operations, and trucks that are immense. So we need to go out and see the people. I was on a rural health review and we talked to small towns all over the province. I've been from Sterling to Peace River on that sort of consultation and from Consort to Bowdoin. We need to do that sort of consultation. We need to do the long process. We need to do the difficult process. And then we need to decide, is it no coal, some coal, or wide open? I would hope it's no coal, but regardless, we have to make that choice. And then we have to institute land use plans that will keep us, um, I guess you could say, make us stick to whatever the plan is. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. If a 10% portion of mountaintop is left, seems to me is more of a visible tombstone for the eastern slopes than orphan well sites. Your comment. Well, if you want to see the remnant that might exist, Tent Mountain pretty much typifies it. You can see it from the BC side on Highway 3 as you head for Sparwood. And there's a pinnacle of rock. I've actually seen some description of people who make mountain, who do mountaineering uh, on, the, on the steps going up the mountain. But th this, this is part of the smoke and mirrors. We will ban mountaintop removal, but if you leave a smidge of mountain, it's not mountaintop removal, therefore you can do what we, what you said we 
you wanted to do. Or you simply dig in from the side. It's not it's not as efficient, but you can do it. Laurie Schultz, um, can you comment on the economic prosperity that the UCP declares Grassy Mountain will provide? The purported boon doesn't include any negatives downstream. The absolute vital part of remembering the economics is that the Old Man River provides approximately 40% of the irrigation water in Alberta. That irrigation water supports everything from the Tabor sugar plant and all the potato processing facilities down there to um, Feedlot Alley and the, um, the dairy industry. If we compromise that water, we compromise many billions of dollars of economic activity. At its best, the coal mine would provide 400 jobs. You have to remember that that 400 is based on current mining technology and autonomous trucks are coming. They're being tested in the mines on BC right now. Close to half the jobs in a mine depend on driving. If you go to autonomous trucks, you can operate four trucks with one observer in a control room somewhere, not necessarily in Crow's Nest Pass. Um, so the 400 jobs might well not appear. Many of those jobs will be taken by people judging from other mines who are what the Australians call Dido, drive in, drive out. The company behind Benga runs an iron mine in Australia that has a 250 kilometer long rail link to the coast that has zero drivers in the trains. They're all, they're all run from a control room 1500 kilometers away. Not one of the people who operates the mine actually lives at the mine. They all fly in and fly out. As for benefits to the provincial economy, they're talking of a 1% royalty um, until the mine is paid for, which means that um, we're talking single-digit millions of dollars. When you have a double-digit billions, that doesn't even register. It's a rounding error in somebody's calculations. Okay. Our last question comes from Beth Mundell. Since this call is destined for China, essentially the UCP government is willing to sacrifice Alberta's health for export. Comments, please. Well, I've always thought that it was kind of ironic that you would tout how clean you are while you sent stuff out to um, be burned elsewhere so that the pollution can come back and get you just the same. Carbon dioxide doesn't care where it's developed. 
it'll it gets all of us. Um, but I can't make um, I can't make politicians moral. Hmm. Why not? Well, I'd have I'd have to be I'd have to be elected as dictator, I guess. <laughs> Okay, I know I said that that was the last question, but the question just came in uh, from Knut Peterson. Following on Laurie's question, tourism is a big economic driver and not many people will be coming to southwestern Alberta to see coal mine firsthand. I guess that's more a comment than a question. Yes, but it brings up an interesting dichotomy in the government. If you look at their the Tourism Alberta plan, it says they're going to double the number of people coming to Alberta, Alberta, and a large number of them will be going to the Crow's Nest Pass area. If you create a gigantic black hole, they aren't coming. Yeah. There's some information out of Australia that basically says coal mining closes off every other economic opportunity. Wow. Okay, that wraps up our session for today. But before we end, Alan, um, can I ask you to provide a take-home message for our viewers, please? It has to be oppose the mines. There are a wide variety of groups. If you look on the internet, there's probably five or six big websites. Um, pick one, support them. They're all NGOs operating on almost no dollars. Benga is backed by the richest woman in Australia with a personal fortune of about 15 billion. Um, I doubt that all of the efforts in Alberta so far come to even a million. Help. Um, we've got a lot of thank yous in the queue from Laurie Schultz, um, Beth Mundell, Patricia Hayes, all thanking you for a uh, providing a very detailed scientific scientific and technical data and information and presented it in a very understandable way. Very much appreciate it, Alan. On behalf of SACPA, we really appreciate your time and your effort in this. I know, like you said, when you started that you didn't, you haven't done a presentation for a long time. Well, this was a roaring success. So thank you very much. Um, before I end the session today, I'd just like to remind people that next week we have uh, Lynn Jacobs, president of the Alberta Federation of Agriculture, talking about current challenges for Alberta's and Canada's farmers. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you again, Alan, for coming today. Goodbye.